Turn with me if you would. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to continue where we've been for the last couple of weeks. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll start our section today in chapter or verse 10. But before that, we're going to back up and catch our context from last week when Jimmy was preaching. So last week, Jimmy preached on 5 through 9, okay? So by recap of last week, Paul was talking about he and Apollos were servants, right? Paul and Apollos were servants of God. And as servants, they were used to grow and build up the Corinthian church. But he was merely a servant, right? He's talking about how, he, what is Paul, what is Apollos, right? They're servants of God, but God himself was always the one who gave the growth, right? This ring bells from last week. And remember, all of this that we're talking about right now, everything we've said so far for the last eight weeks or whatever, has come in the context of the report that Paul received in chapter one, which was the report of divisions in the church. So this is all flowing from him addressing reports of divisions in the church, primarily divisions over people, right? I follow so-and-so, I follow so-and-so, but I follow so-and-so. This is all coming from him addressing that, which is why he was talking last week about who really cares what Paul and Apollos are. They're just workers. God himself is the one that does the growth. So, and, and one thing I thought about as I was preparing this, okay, is that um, I think sometimes when we preach slowly through a letter like this and we dissect it, which is good, we should do that. But sometimes we forget, like, this is a letter written by someone who cared about other people in a pastoral way. Does that make sense? So we should listen to what is being said today and what's being said by Paul as a pastoral, shepherding, caring letter from Paul to a group of believers. We want, I want to receive it as that. This is pastoral love and care, encouragement and correction, okay? Hopefully what I say comes from the same tone and has the same effect on us, all right? This is not a lecture. We are learning and teaching, but really this is a pastoral letter being exposited to a group of people by a pastor. Does that make sense? That's the tone. And <clears throat> not to put this on a heavy note, but we are talking about divisions in the church over leaders and fractures in the church. And it's actually going to get into a whole bunch of other issues in the Corinthian church later. So I want us to think about this for a minute. And my, my goal in saying this is to sort of set the stage for what we're talking about right now. Um, there is no rule, by the way, that this church, FRC, could not divide and fracture, okay? There is no rule that says that that will only happen to the Corinthian church and this church is immune from that. So by show of hands, again, this is my introduction here, by show of hands, who here has been a part of a church that has split or fractured or had major division, particularly in the area of leadership? Okay, so like 90% of the people in this room, okay? So 90% of the people in this room know that happens in churches. It happened in this church and there's nothing that says just automatically it cannot happen in this one. So what Paul says here to the Corinthians, I think is very relevant to us, okay? So that that will not be the case. Last point of introduction. As we read this today, it's going to seem like I'm moving back and forth between individual application and application for the church as a body. And the reason, and application for teachers of the church specifically. So there's teachers of the church, individuals in the church, and the church as a whole. And the application and the discussion kind of seems to move around between the three of those. And that's because there is application for all three and they're sort of like blended together a little bit. But there's a, some specific words to those different groups as we go but the application does apply to all three. So it's gonna feel like we're moving around and applying different things to different people, and that's the case. To quote Eric, who swapped some emails with me on this before this morning, he says, quote, another interesting point and maybe confusing point about this passage is that there is a mixture of application, the teacher, the collective church, and the individual believer, but all of them fit together. This is written for the sake of the collective church, but must be applied on the individual level 
And all of this regards a proper understanding of teachers and preachers. Okay, so with all of that in mind, I want us to read 10 through 17. That's where we're gonna start this morning. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, as though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the first section will be verses 10 and 11, right? It's going to break into three sections. So look with me at 10 and 11. Let's read those two again together. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this is a continuation. The building analogy is a continuation of the thought from verse 9 that he introduced last week. Which says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, so he's using a building analogy. And he's saying, in the building that is you guys, both individually and the church, I built a foundation. This is Paul speaking. He laid a foundation like a skilled master builder. That foundation is Christ. And like someone planting a seed and someone else watering it, Paul has built a foundation, and now somebody else is building upon it. Do we see how that's working? There are people who are working to build up the Corinthian church, Paul himself being the one that laid the foundation. Okay. And though Paul was very clear, go, going back into chapters 1 and 2, he's very clear that he did not come to them with words of eloquent wisdom. That's verse 117. Lofty speech or wisdom, chapter 2, verse 1. And that he was in the, with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. That's chapter 2, verse 3. He was in no way careless or haphazard with how he built the foundation. So he built a foundation, not with words of eloquent wisdom. He built it with fear and much trembling, but he didn't build it sloppy. All right? He carefully, like a master builder, built a foundation, which is Christ. Okay? He knew his place as a gospel servant, as a builder, and not the foundation himself, which was very clear from last week. Paul was not the foundation. He didn't lay himself as that, but he carefully laid Christ as the foundation. And I think part of the thing that he was careful about was not laying it of himself. Okay? He was careful not to do that so that people wouldn't do what they were doing, which is follow after him. Right? Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 about this idea of taking care, right? He said to them in Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, do your best, do your best, that's a work, work at this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Okay? Do you, so do you see Paul's heart both here and elsewhere that he was very careful in what he taught and how he taught it? You can see that. Right? And this is all done according, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to him, which is somewhat amazing to think about. So prior to Paul coming to the Corinthian church and very carefully, with great skill, laying a foundation of Jesus Christ, prior to that happening, 
Paul had been previously, what did he say about himself? A persecutor of the church, right? Chief among sinners. So you have someone that was previously persecuting the church, working very hard, exhibiting great skill, and putting Christians in prison, and trying to destroy the church, and then, quote, according to the grace of God given to him, that person is radically transformed and becomes a skilled master builder who instead of trying to persecute Christ is instead laying a foundation of Christ for all the churches that he taught. Is that amazing? I mean, that is, in my mind, that's amazing, right? You take someone who is dead set one direction, God changes their heart, he's dead set a different direction, and he's doing so now with careful skill to do the exact opposite thing of what he was previously doing, right? Now, so that's what Paul, that's how Paul did it. With skill, with care, he built a foundation. And the foundation is, as we sang about and read about, the foundation, verse 11, is Christ. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And as Jimmy was saying with the cornerstone, that's the load-bearing, load building-squaring, weight-carrying piece of the building. Okay? That's the critical piece of the entire foundation. So what Paul is saying is the foundation of the Corinthian church as a church, the foundation of us as believers is none other than Christ. Any other foundation, by the way, is not a different foundation. It's actually not a foundation, right? So what is the foundation that Paul is specifically talking about? He says the foundation is Christ. Is that just, in general, we're just building on Jesus, right? We have Jesus. Okay, well, what does that mean, right? He means something specific by that. Verses, verse 19 of chapter 1. Look over here. Paul says, he built everything he taught them around the word of the cross, right? Verse 8, I'm sorry, that's verse 18, I said 19. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? If you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, what does he say? For I decided to know nothing among you except, this is the foundation he was laying, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in later on in this same book, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, he says, to the same church, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. This is the foundation, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelfth. Okay? So when Paul says he built a foundation which is Christ, it's not a generic, meaningless, warm, fuzzy, like, oh, we just, Jesus, right? And sometimes I think people just say that, and they don't really know what they mean by that. We're talking about the gospel here, okay? We're talking about Christ crucified, paying for your sins, taking the Father's wrath on your behalf, being resurrected. That's what we're talking about, okay? It's not some nebulous thing. It's the gospel. He built it upon Christ, Christ crucified, him we proclaim, that's the word of the cross. That's the foundation that Paul was laying. And what does he say? For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid. So there is no other foundation that can be laid. A different foundation is not a different foundation. A different foundation is no foundation. All right? Listen to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. Paul speaking again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, right? There isn't a different gospel. There are things that call themselves a different gospel. We can talk about them in that kind of language, but there is no such thing as a different gospel. A different gospel is not the gospel, okay? There's one gospel, there's one foundation, that's the gospel of Christ, as laid out in the scriptures, okay? To quote Tom Schreiner, biblical scholar, he says regarding the church, for if a community is not established on the basis of the gospel, the community is not a church at all. The only true basis for a church is the gospel of Christ. And I think there's an interesting thing we can learn from this right here, a point of application. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians as a church, as an entity, right? The church in Corinth, okay? That's what he says in verse one, chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So when Paul talks about the church of God in Corinth having a foundation, the foundation is Christ, there is no other foundation, it raises the question of what defines a church. How do we know if a group of people can properly be called a church or not, right? Which is a fair question. Okay, so what, what is the difference between a group of people in a church building and a church? Are they the same thing, right? Is a disorganized and sin-ridden church still a church? Like what defines it fundamentally? What makes it a church or not a church, okay? So for example, is a group of unbelievers, no matter how large, meeting in a church building, maybe even doing church things, is that a church categorically? This is a question, is that a church? No, it can't be a church, right? The foundation is not Christ. If it's a group of people who don't love and know Christ, meeting in a church building, doing church things, that's not a church. That's a group of people meeting in a church building, doing church things, okay? It's fundamentally different. What about a group of people gathering together on the basis of a different or contrary gospel. For example, our neighbors, our Jehovah's Witness and Mormon neighbors, right? Is that a church? Biblically speaking. No, it's actually not a church, okay? It's not a church. We have to get these categories right. What about a group of believers meeting on the basis of the gospel, but with sin issues and maybe they don't have elders or deacons? Is that a church? Is that a church? Actually, it is. It is a church, okay? Why? because they have the proper foundation and they have problems, which is basically every church, okay? In fact, this church, the rest of the, what, 13 chapters we have left to go, that will, that will be this church. And quite honestly, that's every church, okay? Paul says a church without elders. Coincidentally, by the way, in Titus 1 is a church that's, quote, not in order, but it's a church, right? So the most fundamental thing that defines a church is a group of believers centered around, meeting upon, built around the gospel. We'll have issues. Churches have issues. But that's the basis of it. That defines a church. You have that, you have a church, dysfunctional or otherwise. Does that make sense? Okay. It's very important to realize that. And it helps sometimes when we talk to people about going to church or being in a church or whatever. What, are we, what do we mean by that? We need to keep our terms clear so people understand what it is we're actually saying. And I would argue that the New Testament is actually full of examples of churches that were churches but had issues. Okay? This being a great example of one but also thinking of Revelations chapter 2 and 3 and the seven churches that Christ addresses, lots of issues there. But they are addressed as what? Churches. Okay? Churches. And remember, one thing I keep telling myself as we read through 1 Corinthians, which I would encourage you to do as well, every time we read a section where there's a bunch of issues addressed, which will be, again, we're only, we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of all of their problems. They got a lot. Read verses 4 through 9. Okay? Because he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, and so on and so forth, okay? He's giving thanks for them. If you read 4 through 9, you're like, wow, these people are awesome. And then you read the rest of the book, and you're like, whoa, problems, you know? So we've got to keep those two things in our minds in balance. Believers can be believers in a, good, in a church that's actually a church and struggle, right? And that's why Paul's addressing them so that they will become what? Mature, right? Mature. They're a church. They're just an immature one, okay? All right. Two points of personal application for this, right? So we have a foundation. Paul built it carefully. The foundation is Christ. It's the only foundation that a church could have and be a church. So here's two things that I want us to take away for ourselves. And then we'll move on to our next section. First of all, I would encourage you, use Paul's description of his own ministry among the Corinthians as a test for the kinds of people that you look to for spiritual inputs. Paul says that he was like a skilled master builder and he encourages people to do this with care. So my encouragement and my plea for you, because we live in 2023 and there is a world out there called YouTube and Spotify, okay? There's books everywhere. Not everybody takes care in how they handle the word. Not everybody builds like a skilled master builder. People do things that are willy-nilly and crazy, okay? But they're in the same places as people who are skilled and careful. So my encouragement to you would be, don't just let anybody teach you and like speak into your spiritual life and just soak it in without any discernment, okay? Use Paul's description of his own work as a way of evaluating the people that you are listening to and reading, okay? And you can tell if somebody is careful or not, right? It's evident in the way people write. It's evident in the way they speak. It's evident in the way they ask questions of other people or don't if someone is taking care in the way that they handle the word, right? And I would encourage you to apply the same things to your elders, which currently means me, Jimmy, and Eric, right? And whoever else the Lord provides at some point. But be, be very gracious to us in the way we deliver it, in the communication, okay? Weakness, fear, much trembling, that's fine. But the content... If we begin to exhibit a lack of skilled care in how we are building up this church and this faith, you should hold us accountable to not do that. Does that make sense? Okay. Use Paul's own example of his ministry as a test for us. And here's one question you can ask, going back for a minute here, to the idea of who you read and listen to and all of that. Okay. This is just a question among many that you could use to evaluate somebody that you are listening to or reading. It's a question. All right. <clears throat> but I find it helpful. Is this author, podcaster, preacher, blogger, etc.? Is this person recognized by their own local congregation as a qualified teacher? Or are they a self-proclaimed teacher operating in the internet world or the podcast world to a long-distance audience with minimal accountability? Okay, that's just one question among many that you could ask. It's a helpful place to start when you're trying to discern if someone is a skilled master builder who's taking care with the word and how they're building on people's faith. Okay, and by the way, We'll see here in verses 12 through 15 in a minute. Not all ministry is of equal value. There is such a thing as bad ministry. There are bad books. There are bad songs. Okay? There are bad podcasts. We'll find that out here in a minute. That's the case for a lot of things. So evaluate these things because they're not all the same. Okay? And also, by the way, by invitation, you can ask us. You can ask me. You can ask Eric. You can ask Jimmy. You can ask other mature believers in this church. If you're reading a book or you're listening to an article or whatever, and some of you have done this, and I'm very thankful for that, you can send it to me and text it to me in a link and say, hey, I just read this or I just saw this, and something seems wonky. That's, we would love to watch that 10-minute clip or read that book or whatever and give you our feedback, 
right? Please utilize the mature believers in this group of people so that you're not out there on an island yourself trying to figure out if you're carefully building on your, on your foundation, okay? Does that make sense? You got that? Okay. Second thing. Understand the very real danger of having your faith rest upon the work or influence of an individual and not on Christ himself. Jimmy was talking about this last week. There's a very real danger of this. And I can say that for sure because it was a real problem for the Corinthians. Okay? Now, this is an existential question, meaning you either have your foundation right or you don't. It's not like one day you have a foundation that's Christ and another day you don't. We're talking about like either you are a believer or you're not. But I would encourage us, as Paul says, to examine ourselves and ask this question. Okay? And there are two specific ways I want us to think about this. And I have this next point. This was written out exactly as I'm about to read it prior to Jimmy's sermon last week. Okay? If Eric died in a car accident tomorrow and never preached another sermon at FRC, would your faith be able to sustain that? Would that rightly rock your boat or totally sink it? Okay, in his analogy, Eric preaches somewhere else. In my analogy, he's dead. Point is the same. Eric is a phenomenal Bible teacher. We are unbelievably gifted. He's unbelievably gifted. We're unbelievably graced as a church to have him. But Eric would tell you, as surely as Jim and I are telling you, Eric is not the foundation. Eric is the worker who's laying the foundation. Okay? And I've seen a lot of people who put a lot of eggs in the preacher basket, and then the preacher fails morally, moves, dies, whatever, and they just implode. Okay? Their foundation wasn't the message, it was the messenger. Does that make sense? It's a real question we have to ask. Okay? Second thing, specifically as far as having a different foundation that I think applies to us as Westerners living luxurious lifestyles. If the good things in life that you call blessings from God were to be taken away and your life was suddenly filled with suffering, would your foundation prove to have been Christ or the comfortable life that you had for a time which you were considering a blessing from an evidence of relationship with him? Are you in love with the gifts or the gift giver? Okay, I've also seen this. People have good lives, everything is going well, hashtag blessed, and then they get cancer. Or their brother gets cancer. Or their mom gets cancer. Or something like that. And suddenly their foundation doesn't prove to be Christ anymore. It proves to be the good health they had. And they had equated those two things in their mind. God loves me, so I have a good life. Suddenly I don't have a good life anymore. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I don't love him. Boom. It all explodes. They loved the gifts. They did not treasure or know or love the gift giver. Fundamentally. Does that make sense? That's a real danger. And I think it's a real danger for those of us who live in affluent societies where we equate our comfortable lifestyles with God's favor. And when we lose the one, we question the other, and our faith can just blow up. Okay? At the very core of our Christian identity, there can be none other than Christ himself. Any other foundation will prove to be no foundation at all. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The very core of Paul's identity, his foundation, was Christ himself. He loved and treasured Christ. Okay? All right. Verse 12. There is a foundation. The foundation is Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. It means it will become known. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, as though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So who's, okay, there's a foundation. Foundation is Christ. But who's, there's some building. Somebody's building on this foundation. Who's building and with what materials? Paul's still using the same analogy or same metaphor. Well, I would say the primary application of this, though not the only one, as we'll see in a minute, the primary application, I believe, is teachers in the church, okay? He's been talking about how he and Apollos came. They taught very carefully. They built a foundation in the Corinthian church. So he says here, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, etc., 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 I think he's primarily speaking a word of caution to those who would teach the church, all right? But he does say that anyone or each one who does so must take care. So we're going to talk about how that applies to all of us as well in a minute. And there are different materials that he gives us that you can build with. This is a common building analogy. You can build with gold, silver, precious stones, which would be like an ornate, fancy building. Those are permanent things. Or you can build with wood, hay, and straw. So there's two categories there. Gold, silver, precious stones, those things are permanent, valuable. Wood, hay, and straw, not so valuable, not so permanent. All right? So as teachers build upon the foundation of Christ in the work of leading his church, the work that they do will someday become manifest. Manifest just means known. It'll become known. Okay? What they teach and what that teaching produces will become evident. Okay? And, as I said before, not all ministry work is the same. Not all books, not all songs, not all podcasts, not all teaching ministries are the same. Some will prove to have been more valuable eternally than others. I think that's part of why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, right? There is a weight that comes with a teaching ministry, either as an elder like this or in any other capacity in a church when you teach other people. There's a weight that comes with that. And there's an evaluation that will come with that, a stricter evaluation, right? Think about, <clears throat> think about how Paul confronted Peter to his face because Peter was teaching something that was causing people to go awry, okay? This is coming out of Galatians chapter 2 when Paul was recounting a confrontation with Peter. He says, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, and rightfully so. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there was a situation in which Peter was teaching people something, and that something proved to not be good. It was misleading people. Okay? 
Paul confronted him on it and realigned him. Apollos, actually, at one point, too, was also confronted by Priscilla and Aquila, politely and gently, because his teaching was not fully accurate, okay? So I think there's a, wor a warning here to those who would teach. You've got to make sure that what you're teaching is correct, because if you're teaching people things and you're building up, the foundations, uh, building up upon the foundation of the church, some of the work that you do, if it's not biblically accurate and in line with the gospel, will prove to be worthless work. Okay? It will be misleading people. It will not be making mature believers. Right? That's why Paul confronted Peter. He wasn't teaching rightly. Okay? He was producing hypocrisy in people, not maturity. All right? So as people build upon the foundation of the church and teach, again, we're primarily talking about that application right now, if the work that they have done proves valuable, there's a reward. That's verse 14. If not, there will be a loss of reward, and that minister or teacher will have little to show for their effort. Okay? Here's an extended quote on that subject. Schreiner says that Paul does not tell us what the reward will be. I wish he did. I was trying to find it. He doesn't. Okay? Paul does not tell us what this reward will be. Possibly, it is a satisfaction and joy of seeing the fruit of their ministry on the final day. Such a reading fits with what Paul says elsewhere. Quote, for what is our hope? our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. That's out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That might be the reward, right? The reward might be the fruit of their ministry, seeing that in others. I would agree that that, in my mind, makes sense. On the other hand, still quoting Schreiner, those who build on the foundation with wood, hay, or straw will find that their work is consumed by flames. It's difficult to know for certain what Paul has in mind. Perhaps he considers teaching and ministry which is off-center, which does not teach clearly that Jesus is the crucified Messiah, and yet does not depart from the gospel entirely. Hence, the work of the ministry does not last, since it strays from the center of the gospel, but still the minister will be saved. Even though their ministries are significantly flawed, they themselves will not be destroyed on the day of the Lord. Do we see this category? We can see this as a category. A believer who's just not teaching accurately and well, their ministry work proves to not have been very fruitful, but they were not unbelievers. They were not opposed to the gospel. They just did a bad job of teaching it. Or they didn't take care and weren't using skill. Does that make sense? We see this as a category. Because there's going to be another category coming up here that's going to be a little bit different than that. So we've got to understand it as what he's saying here. Okay? And I would argue too, because it does raise the question, do we have to wait until later to see the results of someone's ministry? And I would say, not entirely. Right? Sometimes we can tell now, generally speaking, when someone's ministry appears to be gold, silver, and precious stones, right? Someone's teaching in a church, the church is healthy, the church is growing, the church is producing mature believers, people love the Lord, the gospel is clearly taught. I would argue, pretty good guess, that's, that's probably gold, silver, precious stone stuff going on, right? Guy's in a church, he's preaching for four or five years, there's division in the church, people don't understand the gospel clearly, he leaves and the church blows up in five years. Uh, that's probably wood, hay, and straw. Fairly good guess, right? But it does say clearly that the day, which that's the day when Christ evaluates believers for what they have done. Okay, we're going to get to that in a minute. That will make it all manifest. So there is, we have to understand, some things look really good now that will prove later to not be. Some things don't look so good now that might prove later to be better than we thought. We, we can see some of this now, but ultimately Christ will be the final assessor of someone's ministry, and that day will reveal exactly what it was. Okay? Which, by the way, if you hear Eric quote Colossians 1, 28 and 29 a lot, it's because of this, right? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay? The pastors of this church will someday answer directly to Christ himself for the ministry work done in this body. How did we shepherd? How did we teach? How did we minister? How did we counsel? How did we love? How did we care? We have to answer directly to Christ for that. And, and what we did will become very evident. So when, when we talk about what Eric talks about a lot, which is struggling and toiling and working to present mature believers, we would like to hand over to Christ a group of mature believers. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Not a bunch of spiritual babies. Okay? And I'm not talking about people who are new in the faith. That's fine. We're talking about people who just didn't grow at all. Okay? We don't want to present to Christ a bunch of people who just never grew under our ministry. Right? That's a very big weight that the elders of this church carry. And you can pray for us to that end. Okay? Now, as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, so we don't get things confused here. The day, he says the day will make it clear. Okay? There's a judgment here. A very obvious judgment. We're not talking about God's judgment on sin right now. That judgment on sin, that's paid for by Christ for believers. That's a different judgment for unbelievers someday that they will experience. We're talking about the judgment that Christ has for believers, which is an assessment of the work that they have done as stewards in his ministry. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. And that, Paul discusses that elsewhere. Right? It is clear that believers will give an account for how they stewarded their lives and their resources in the service of the gospel. That's the judgment we're talking about. It's not a judgment of wrath against your sin. But you do have an accountability to give to God for what you have done. So, okay, I said a minute ago, I'm specifically talking primarily first about teaching ministry because I think that's what Paul is specifically talking about first and primarily. But I think there's a right expansion of that application to believers in general. So does everything I just said only apply to me, Eric, and Jimmy? And you guys can just tune out and disregard. I would say probably not, okay? Because we know from the word that believers are expected to build up themselves and to build up one another, okay? Colossians 3. We are to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Believers are to quote Jude 20, build themselves up in their most holy faith. And Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is at the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay? So there's an individual believer and a group of believers' responsibility that there's going to be teachers building people up, there's going to be individuals building themselves up in their faith, and there's going to be individuals building each other up so that the body builds itself up as a group. Does this make sense? This is a group effort. You build yourself up, you build up those around you, and teachers build you up as well. Okay? You do not, by the way, have to be going back to what Paul said in verse 10, you do not have to be a trained professional, a seminary grad, a well-read, well-whatever-rounded believer to teach another believer. You do not have to be. Categorically, Paul does not say, let those who've been to seminary teach each other. We all teach each other. But the operative word, what is the operative word? Let each one take care how he builds. Right? So you can be a brand new believer know very little about the Bible, but know the gospel, and you can teach another believer. You don't have to be very smart. You just have to take care. That's your, those are your marching orders. Build each other up. Take care. Okay? And I, an example of, I think, how, this, how you guys know what I'm talking about is, remember, like, it's probably been 
first quarter of this year. The men taught on Wednesday nights. Do you remember what I'm talking about? We took turns, we taught through Romans, okay? I talked to all the guys about that. And I put myself in that category, right? And most guys, I mean some guys didn't want to do the public speaking part, which is totally fine. Not everybody likes to stand up in front of people and talk. But what made most, the, the thing that weighed the heaviest on everybody as we prepared to teach was not, I gotta talk in front of people. It's, I have to tell people what the Bible says, right? And I think everybody was rightly, intimidated might be too strong of a word, rightly burdened to take care in how they taught so they didn't come up here and tell you what the Bible says and be wrong about it, okay? That's what I'm talking about, right? It's just being careful with the word so that when you whip out a Bible verse and tell it to somebody, you're just thinking about what you're saying, right? You're trying to do your best to understand the scriptures and build somebody up so that what you're saying is true and effective for them, right? You're trying to build with wood and we're trying to build with precious stones and not just with wood, okay? All right, <clears throat> I'll quote a pastor smarter than me in summarizing this section. This text, he's talking about what we just read. This text is not first or mainly about the general good works of all believers, though I think the implication is going to be there. But it's first and mainly about service in the word to the church and how she is built up, putting stones in place and building the church with right teaching. When you try to think what it really means that the works are burned up, it seems likely to me that this refers not to just a false teaching being exposed and excluded from heaven, but it says in 1 Corinthians 3.14 that teachers work will be burned up. That is, he has built something with his teaching and what he's built may just go poof in the judgment. Things that he had thought he had constructed with teachings will be found to be worthless. And hear this, the scary thing is that this may include people and ministries it may include the lives of people that he thought he'd brought to Christ and built up in the faith, and it proves they weren't Christians at all because they didn't understand the gospel because it was so clouded by what he taught, though he himself was a Christian. The whole ministry he may have built on his clouded view just goes poof in the fires of judgment. So everybody needs to be vigilant with how we build, how we build ourselves with what others teach us, and how we build others, end quote. All right, look at verse 16. This is our last little subsection of today's passage. Do you not know that you, plural, okay, the, the yous in 16 and 17 are plural. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul's reminding them of something that they should have known because of what he previously taught them when he was with them. He says, do you not know? Remember, I was there, I taught you this. Paul had already told them this. You are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you. And he's talking about the church collectively here, okay? And he's continuing the building analogy. Specifically, the building is a temple, okay? And I think <clears throat> there's a warning here to believers, just simply. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? He actually applies this language individually elsewhere in scripture. Here it's applied collectively, okay? So it's not as just, anyone lives in this building that we're building. Remember, there's a building metaphor here. There's a building being built. It's not a warehouse, okay? It's not a storage unit. It's a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. As such, it should be built up well, okay? We should take care in how we build this building because the Holy Spirit is here, okay? But I do think primarily the warning here or the discussion here is about a third category of ministry, right? Because we have someone in verse 16, excuse me, verse 15, whose work is burned up, but he himself is not burned up. Do you see that? 
There's somebody in verse 15 who does ministry. The ministry is no good. It's burned up. But he himself proves to not have been, to have been a believer. He's not burned up. In verse 16 and 17, we have someone here that destroys God's temple and he himself is also destroyed. You see that difference? This individual himself is destroyed. So I think categorically what we're talking about here is an unbeliever who damages and so destroys and perverts the gospel in the church that he actually destroys a church. Okay? This is not a believer because the believer is not destroyed, but this guy is destroyed. And he does such damage to the church that he also destroys it. Okay? Listen to what 2 Peter says in two different places in 2 Peter 2 about false prophets. That's a different category than a believer who's not teaching very well. We're talking about a false teacher. 2 Peter chapter 2, a couple places. But false prophets will false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. But these false prophets, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Okay? So I think there is in mind here somebody who so damages by teaching a false gospel, so damages and so therefore destroys a church that he proves that he wasn't a believer, he did not understand the gospel, he destroyed the faith of others, and he himself will be destroyed. And why will he be destroyed? Because he destroyed God's church. And it's important to realize here, okay, we're not talking about God's global church. That cannot be destroyed. The gates of hell cannot overcome the global church. You understand what I'm saying? But you can really blow up a local church. You can grenade a local congregation by teaching a false gospel, leading people astray, ripping out the foundation, or not even laying one at all that is the gospel, and then no longer do you have a good, healthy local church. You blew it up. Okay, that happens. People do that. False teachers blow up churches. Or they start churches that were never churches at all, and then those blow up. And for that person, there is an expectancy of destruction. Does that make sense? That's a very strong warning, okay? The church is a holy entity. It's dedicated to God. It's consecrated. It's set apart. Christ obtained this church with his own blood. That's Acts chapter 20. And she is his bride. He loved himself, gave himself up for her. He's very protective of his church. The one who would destroy it, cannot expect pleasant things from Christ in return, okay? His church is very precious to him. I'm going to quote Schreiner again. This section here is the third kind of minister. The first serves well and receives a reward. The second is saved but ministers poorly, hence the work is burned up. But the third person destroys God's temple, which means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is repudiated, and as a consequence, a church is ruined. Such an interpretation, incidentally, does not contradict the claim in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not triumph over the church. For Jesus speaks of the church in its entirety. He is not claiming that every local church will continue to be faithful till the end of history. Okay? It is possible to repudiate the gospel and ruin a church. That's the kind of person we're talking about in 16 and 17. 
Pray that that does not happen here, and we don't let anybody up here on this pulpit that ever does that, okay? Let's be watchful and vigilant that you don't let somebody in here, as Peter said, a false teacher does not arise among us and do that. So I need to be watchful, okay? You need to be watchful, because that, that can happen. It does happen. I've seen it happen, okay? <clears throat> All right. Summarizing where we've been today, three sections. He built a foundation. The foundation is Christ. We build upon that foundation individually, collectively, and as pastors. And then there's a third category, which is someone destroys a church. It's very important to Paul, because it's very important to God, that those who minister in the church should be careful in how they build upon the true foundation of every church, namely, Jesus Christ. Some who minister will be rewarded for doing well. Some will have their works revealed to be useless. And others will themselves prove to have been against God's church entirely and will be destroyed. Okay? So, overall, I would say this is a sobering word to those who teach here, specifically, but also to all of us, to ask ourselves, how am I building on my own faith? How am I building on the faith of the others in this church? It's very important to the Lord how his temple is built up. Okay? And here's an analogy, I think, to help us realize that. So we're talking about God's temple, right? A beautiful building. It's supposed to be. That's in your mind. You should think of a temple, a nice building, okay? It's important that you build a nice building well. In your own house, okay, this is my analogy to help us think about, like, how important this is. In your own house, if you are doing plumbing and electrical work, okay, let's make it specific. We're doing plumbing with the septic system, okay? When you do plumbing with your septic system, namely the pipe that comes from the toilet to the septic tank, when you build that pipe, you build that pipe with care or you slap it together and hope it flows the right direction. You build it with care, right? And if you hire somebody to build that pipe or wire those wires together in your kid's bedroom, you're not hiring the first guy with a hammer and a pickup truck, okay? You're hiring a contractor that knows what he's doing. He's probably done it before. He's exhibited some skill. You can see his work, right? You go look at some other stuff that he built. In your own house, when you do things like plumbing and electrical, you take care, right? Because the consequences are really bad if you don't. How much more so spiritually speaking, when we build up the church and we build up our faith, we're talking about eternal significance here, how much more care should we take? The consequences for that are way worse than your plumbing flowing backwards. But yet, that's really important to us. So, eternally speaking, let's take the same kind of care when we build up ourselves and this building, namely the church. I'm speaking specifically right now about fellowship, renewed church, these people, okay? All right. <clears throat> Let's close in prayer. Lord, your word is so rich. It's so good. There's so much here for us. And God, I pray that as we, as we hear what Paul said to the Corinthians, from one pastoral figure to another group of believers, Lord, I pray that your word would be heard and received the same way today. God, we're a group of believers just like the Corinthians were. We're a church built on the gospel, but we're not perfect. Lord, I pray that in our own teaching as elders of this church, as people in this church teaching and encouraging one another, as believers building up our own faith, that we would be careful, Lord. We don't have to be professional, but we have to be careful. God, I pray that the work that we do here, our various ministries, our men's and women's nights, arts camp, the music we sing right now, I pray that those things would prove to be precious stones and gold and silver, producing maturity in people, not something that turns out to be totally worthless. We do not want to do things here that are totally worthless, Lord. Give us wisdom so that we don't. Lord, we love you. 
we love Christ, may he only ever be the true foundation of this church, Lord. Help us never to stray from that. God, we exalt him. We praise him. We're thankful for him. We pray all of these things in his glorious name, Lord. Amen.